all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm a pathologist, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens, who is an OBGYN, an expert in maternal fetal medicine, and we are both experts to some extent in breast, breast cancer. cancer, and we're talking about uh, breast cancer in general, because this is the end. We're rounding yeah. the corner at, at the end of uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we would be remiss yeah. uh, to skip that topic on our women's show. Indeed. So if you, so you might already have heard some of the information that will be shared today, and for those of you who have not, then we are... We're going to allow you to check that box for your breast cancer awareness information. Um, if you or someone you know is in need of a mammogram, text them, call them, um, encourage them, because people aren't always excited or enthusiastic about that process. But it's cool because we get a chance to do breast cancer from both sides, right? Like the side, your like the side. left and the right? Well, that wasn't what I was thinking. I was kind of thinking chain of like. Well, it's true because you, you know, as a pathologist, we always are skewed towards disease because by the time I am exposed to the patient, they've had a biopsy. Yeah. Right. So the, you know, there's this skew. If I would look at the population that I engage with, um, it's a lot more directed. And although most women who have a breast biopsy, most of them do not have cancer, of course, a much higher percentage of them will as compared to who you see in right. your practice where you're dealing with screening and large population. Absolutely. Um, or for those people who detect a mass, um, whether they're doing their own exams or if, um, if through um, an exam, a clinical examination in the office, we detect something that is uh, of concern. So, um, yeah, it's like we're on the front end or the beginning stage of it. Um, and then... You know, you are kind of the person who's really instrumental in like the specifics of the diagnoses. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more later on in the show about the different types of breast cancer. And, you know, you're the person who's peering through the microscope, kind of determining what type of cancer when the diagnosis is cancer or if it's benign, exactly what that mass represents. So, um, yeah, it's kind of kind of cool that we get a chance to talk about this today. Yeah, I mean, breast cancer, um, I've devoted a large part of my career to it. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about being a breast pathologist is that 
uh, breast cancer was one of the earliest types of cancers where we really had a lot of different tests we could run on an individual patient or on their cancer to really tailor the way that they are treated to specifically kind of how their tumor, um, the factors that their tumor kind of expresses. There are lots of cancers that kind of have this blanket, very yeah, toxic therapy thrown at exactly. them, and they, they aren't able to be. Now, over time, you know, since when I finished my training and, you know, over the past 20 years or so since I graduated from medical school, a lot of other tumors have followed suit. And we're learning a lot more Mm -hmm. about this so-called precision medicine and things like that. But breast cancer was on that track, was really, you know, ahead of the game in in most instances. Um, So always kind of a rewarding thing for that because yeah. there were so many good treatments for for women still Absolutely. are and and i think with that along with you know getting better screening and having more people having access to screening now it's still not 100 percent. hello um there are still people who struggle with with access to appropriate screening um and and i think that 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 in part contributes somewhat to some of the disparities that we see in breast cancer detection and, and survival. But I think overwhelmingly what you said is played out in the past you know, couple of decades where we've seen like breast cancer death rates are continually declining. And I think that is that's great news um, because a diagnosis of breast cancer does not mean a death sentence. And there are a variety of different treatment options that can be available um, to people who have the diagnosis. Um, again, the, look, the cancer theme is still the same, though. Early detection is key. That part hasn't changed. Um, it is definitely more challenging when you have later stage disease or, or more widely distributed disease. Um, but the five-year survival rates are high, and the opportunities for individuals to actually have a cure um, is also really high. And and I think that that is actually great news. I think anytime we talk about cancer awareness of any type, um, that information is really important to get out to the public um, because I think that it helps to decrease um, some of the fear, not all of it, but some of the, the fear and anxiety um, surrounding, you know, just the process um, of screening and and the process that you undertake if diagnosis is, you know, the Absolutely. pathway you're going on. Let's look at some of these numbers. In 2022, uh, American Cancer Society projected 287,850 new cases of invasive breast cancer to be diagnosed and also projected that about 43,000 uh, people would die from breast cancer in that in, in this year. Um, a small percentage of cases account are, are men. So men can also get breast cancer. Only a, yes. um, less than 3,000 men a year are diagnosed with breast cancer. And if you have a man in your family who has breast cancer, that is important information. If you know anybody in your family that has cancer of any kind is important. But especially if you are a woman or a man who has a male in your family who is affected with breast cancer, extremely important information for you to know and share with your with your healthcare provider. Yeah, a man um, with breast cancer is almost like 99.9% certain to have a mutation in the BRCA2 gene, um, which is one Bracket of those two. breast cancer mm-hmm. genes. So yeah, and those are inheritable. So yeah, absolutely. That's a huge uh, risk factor. But what you just said about... Um, women living with breast cancer. 
Uh, over 4 million women alive today have had or currently have breast cancer. That's a lot. It is. Um, and over 150,000 women are living today with metastatic breast cancer. So we're seeing metastatic breast cancer in many instances becoming something that's almost like a chronic disease, um, which is a huge uh, success for, for treatment and, and a great win for our patients. We're going to go to the phone lines and talk to Rebecca, who's calling us from Fulton. Hey, Rebecca. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. What's your question? Yes. I, yes, I was calling because I am obese and, I'm, and I have family history that I'm at a higher risk for breast cancer. Um, uh, and I want to know... I'm getting a mammogram next week, but I've been told that I'm supposed to be, I'm getting a 3D mammogram, but I'm just, but they, she said that I was supposed to do something at the six-month point, and I'm not sure if it was a sonogram or what it was that I was, they were, they were going to do some other type of, I'm not sure if it was an MRI or a sonogram or what it was that I was supposed to have done uh, at the six-month point, but it, it was, she was saying that I was going to need screening every six months. To, to make sure she was going, we want to alternate, and I don't understand what were the other things, other tests that they use uh, off and on. I mean, to, to check for breast cancer. So yeah, the screening mammogram is a it's a very effective screening test. It's not a hundred percent as uh, no screening test is, but it's essentially an X ray of your breast. Um, and they take it in um, two different views on the standard, right? They take it kind of where they smush you from the top, and then they kind of smush you a little bit from smush the side. You from the top, <laughs> the and smush. From the side. Um, and it and it's an X-ray, and it's very high resolution. And there are lots of different ways that a computer can aid in interpreting those mammograms um, that radiologists have access to now. Two other ways that um, breasts can be imaged are by ultrasound, which you're exactly right, is a sonogram. Dr. Owens does those a lot on babies, um, but they can also be done on breasts. And they're uh, particular, particularly for women with dense breast tissue, which are women who tend to be younger. And then there are women who just tend to have very dense breast tissue. Yeah. Ultrasounds can be... Um, as effective, if not more effective, and definitely a great complement to mammography. Yeah. Because just like an x-ray, if it looks at something that's dense, like if you think about an x-ray that shows your bones, if it's something that's very dense, it's hard to see through it. It's hard for those x-rays to pass through it. So the ultrasound is a, is a great option for that as well. In fact, for women under the age of 40, it is generally recommended yeah, um, that ultrasound is the primary modality. Typically, those uh, I always think of it like the uh, women of reproductive age, in, in general, um, it is not uncommon to have, um, even when you, so you may get an annual mammogram, but if, especially if there's a concern or if you're at elevated risk, or if you have a mass, a lot of times you'll see that, that, um, you'll have both of those done together. And that's going to be dependent upon things like your age. Um, and then particularly like the mass itself, um, and your risk, but there are some additional, um, MRI is sometimes used. Again, um, those are not kind of the more typical screening um, imaging studies that are utilized, but sometimes in certain select cases, MRI is used. Um, you mentioned that you were in a high-risk group, so that speaks to the alternating um, modalities and also the shorter window of time. And so it, I think it's really important 
um, we talk all the time about risk factors and knowing your risk. And the reason why knowing your risk is important is because if you do fall into a high risk category, then there will be special things that your healthcare provider, your clinic, your clinician will use to ensure that you are a person who's getting the appropriate surveillance. So, for the for the on the six month out, will they, you know, have um, Medicare and and uh, supplemental? And I'm just wondering, will will it be expensive for me to get that the six months out? Well, you definitely need to make sure I would find that out in advance. That's a great question. If it, A lot of times if you're having an MRI, they'll, they'll pre-certify yeah. you, like they'll call and make sure that it's covered because the MRI would be very costly. A mammogram actually is not very expensive. And the ultrasounds tend not to be as Yeah, but the MRI either. would be very expensive. So just make sure your provider or you can call your you know insurance provider um that that's been clarified that's a that's a great point yeah and and knowing that knowing that in advance because if you're if you're a person who just follows what the recommendations are and you show up and do it then if look if it's not covered you will get a bill so um it's really important i think to ask those questions up front and the other thing is if you are a person who like has um financial issues or barriers Please discuss that with your team in advance because there are there are options that are available to you or it may actually alter the way in which your screening is carried out. They may take that into consideration and they it may be that it's perfectly acceptable for you to have uh, an ultrasound and a mammogram as opposed to being followed by the MRI if that's a, a, a problem. So if there's ever an opportunity where a lesser expensive option is available and still will provide the same or equivalent information, then, you know, being able to, to be transparent about that on the front end will always work to your benefit. I think a lot of times um, as patients – we don't always talk about how much things are going to cost. And we think, well, you know, this is what they've told me that I have to have or what have you. And then you go and do it. And then all of a sudden you get mm-hmm. the sticker shock on the back end. So very, very great question. Um, and and the truth is that it's highly variable depending mm-hmm. on where you are. Um, they tend not to be standard, but reimbursements, especially on the Medicare side um, and for um, more of the federal or government type plans, tend to be relatively standard for reimbursement. So even if there is um, additional charge or some other technology that you need, most people will be able to at least give you a reasonable estimate up front. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for your call. I hope that answered your questions. And congratulations on going next week for your mammogram. You should celebrate afterwards. Go do something for yourself. Yeah, you bet. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Allie Brown, and I'm here today with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens. We are talking about breast cancer. Breast cancer. It's the end of October, so it is the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we are a show all about women, and breast cancer is the most common cancer in women, if you don't count skin cancer. Don't forget about sunscreen now. Wear your SPF. But it is the most common cancer. uh, cancer in women, non-skin cancer. That's correct, non-skin cancer. So we need to talk about it. And it happens in men too, as we mentioned before. So call us with any questions or comments you might have or stories you have, yeah, encouragement you have. survivors out there oh, yeah. who've been through it. Um, I think, you know, that is, it's always encouraging and I personally very uplifting to hear those stories. Um, and I think 
hearing it firsthand from individuals who've had that experience um, is really powerful um, and kind of, I think, helps to build a sense of community for those folks who are who are struggling with it. Because yeah. I think um, any time that you have a, a cancer diagnosis, um, a lot of times it has the ability to seem very isolating. Um, and so, yeah. We'd love to hear from you. Or maybe you have some words of encouragement uh, for our sisters out there to go have their mammograms done. I mean, it's not the best thing in the world. But it's not the worst. I, I, look, that, that falls under self-care to me. Um, cancer screening is, is really important. So it's on the list. It's like mammogram, pap smear, when you're supposed to get them. And I, I don't know about your experience, Doc, but I have to say that Every time, every year when I have my mammogram, those mammogram techs that work there, they're like the most pleasant people on the planet. They, so, it's a, so, it's, it's yeah. like a job description, part of the job description where they have but to be kind of funny really and wonderful. nice. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, but I think that's the thing, right? Like you recognize that most people coming in are not like super excited about it. <laughs> about taking off their yeah. shirt for you well, and getting in the machine. The pancake thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and a lot of times there's a lot of anxiety that happens before. I Look, vulnerable moment. Um, the last time that I went to get um, a mammogram, I, um, they, you know, you get to disrobe in the little room. I, I always and, get confused. Open to the front, open to the back. It's like you're upstairs, open, open to the back. Downstairs, open indeed, to the front. I can't tell front. what's going on. And so I, um, I was getting, putting on my, the little... Um, the little gowny thing. It's, it's not like really a, bo- a gown. It's like it's a bolo like a, vest. It's like a small, like a small robe. It was a very nice small robe. <laughs> oh, that's nice. And and I like, caught, I I was turning around and there's this nice mirror there, and I just looked at myself in the mirror and all of a sudden I don't know what happened, but like tears just started flowing down my what? eyes. I had no look, no mass, no nothing. Just, but it was just. I realized I'm like, oh my gosh, like I had this weird anxiety thing mm. that that was somewhere buried in my subconscious. But instantly, like, I look in the mirror and tears start rolling down my face. Oh, my gosh. I, I thought you were going to say you looked in the mirror and were like, dang, I look good. <laughs> so, no, so no. Um, looked in the mirror, tears <laughs> start rolling down say. my face. And, and so I pick up the phone and I call my friend who's an oncologist. And I said, she answers the phone. And I was like, hey, um, I'm at my mammogram appointment and I'm standing in the dressing room and I am crying like a newborn baby. Aww. And she said, I do that every year. Oh my! And I and all of a sudden I just felt so seen. Um, and it didn't seem as ridiculous, but like it, it's real. And I still I didn't really understand it at the time. It just kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. But yeah, I stood up in there and I cried like a baby. And then I cleaned up my face and walked outside. And you know, it was a pancake press, and and it was fine. But um, that that whole like emotional process, whether it's heavy. Or just really foreboding. That is, it's a real thing. It's a real, a real thing. thing. But Indeed. but here's the public service announcement: that mammogram is not giving anybody cancer. So if you have breast cancer, Touché. going to have that mammogram is it it if it's picked up, it was there yesterday. It yeah. was there the day before, and you are empowering yourself to get it picked up earlier rather than later to have it treated with a higher chance of success. Yeah. So go have that mammogram. It's true. Get it's it not going to give you cancer. That's correct. So but it will help you find the cancer that's there. That's right. If it's there. We're going to go to the phones and talk to Francis, who's calling us from Mobile. Hey, Francis. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My question, my question is about dense breast tissue, which after I've had 
mammograms a time or two, I remember them saying that I had dense breast tissue. And may I say at my age, my breasts are certainly not dense and firm. But anyway, I wanted to know if, if, you, if that's something related to cancer later or exactly what they mean and what it pretends. Yes, so having dense breast tissue is a slight risk factor for breast cancer. So women with dense breast tissue do have a slightly elevated risk of having breast cancer. Not as much as if you have a first-degree relative that's like a mom or a sister with breast cancer. Or well, if you have a, I did have a mother. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah, it is uh, an, an increased risk, and women can have dense breasts. Well, women usually have denser breasts when they're younger. It is age-independent. You can have dense breasts at any age. Yes. Many women may have issues with dense breast tissue related to hormone replacement therapy, and then will find that once they discontinue that, um, they have less issues with that because of it influences the hormone-prone um, areas in the breast to to be stimulated and to have things what we call like fibrocystic change and things like that. But it is important um, for all women, particularly women with dense breast tissue, say that 10 10 times times fast, fast. (gasps) (laughs) to go ahead and go ahead and have their screening. Well, yeah, and I think the other part is, um, so dense breast tissue by itself um, is, is not really a problem. It's just the it's it's a way of describing the lay of the land if you will it's kind of like a a a a way of describing the amount of glandular tissue because let's just i have to go back to the basics like so our breasts are mammary glands and you know Mm -hmm. they they are there to be able to produce milk for uh for our young and so as that was very scientific, right? For 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 babies, whatever. But um, so for our young, when we produce live young, that was a very like scientific You're such answer. A um, but I, I but I think it's important to remind people of that because that's where the the so it's the glandular um, tissue. You know, if you're not breastfeeding, then that glandular tissue tends not to be overly active, right? It's not actively secreting milk or any or colostrum or anything like that. And so it's just a way of describing how, like the ratio, if you will, of your glands to fat to the other connective tissue, the other tissue that just kind of holds things together within the breast. Okay, that makes that's a good explanation. But and I do get regular mammograms. Excellent, um, good for you. Because of my mother, you know the history of my mother mm-hmm. having had it, and I never, never did take hormone replacement therapy because my gynecologist said, uh, "No, let's not do that." Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting when when we because it's like the label, right? So they say, "Oh, well, you have dense breast tissue," and all of a sudden you're like, "What does that mean?" And and is dis- mm-hmm. is dense breast tissue bad or good? I think it's kind of like if somebody said you're left-handed versus right-handed. It's just kind of it's just a thing that you are, and it's about the way that your body um, is. It's a description of your body, um, and so it's a slight increased risk, but. Um, you know, the other part is that the more dense things are, the more difficult it is to see through. And so folks with dense breasts will oftentimes have more callbacks or more follow-ups or, you know, those kinds of things as well. So, 
Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you absolutely. for your question, Thanks Francis. For your nice speaking to you. We are discussing <laughs> breast cancer. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm a pathologist. I'm a breast pathologist, actually, if you want to talk about it. And I'm here with Dr. Michelle Owens, who is a gynecologist in OBGYN with specialization in maternal fetal medicine. That's high-risk obstetrics. And we are your hosts of Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Owens, we heard about dense breasts. We heard about breast cancer screening. We heard about, we talked a little bit about men having breast cancer. Let's talk about other risk factors for developing breast cancer. So, you know, the the risk of any woman at any point in time, particularly younger women, is actually quite low. But those risks can be modified by any different number of risk factors, some controllable and some not, like we always talk about with any disease, right? You can separate those risk factors into ones that you can control and some that you can't. Because for instance, the biggest risk factor for developing breast cancer is being a woman. Oh. So, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, there. So yeah, that that's true. That's right. Um, but men can also be at risk. That's yeah, right. Much Being less a woman. Than. Next thing would probably be age. Age. So um, yeah, so as my grandma would say, keep living, that increases your risk. But that's um, okay. Abs- well, I mean, yeah. embrace it. Longevity, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are bonuses and then there are a couple of things that, you know, kind of are out there. But, I mean, I think the good thing is that even if you know that um, longevity is associated with an increased risk, like that doesn't mean you're going to get it. But, you know, as long as there's good screening, um, then okay, we just continue, you know, continue the screening so that you make sure that you um, are doing what you need to do considering your risk status or profile. That's right. You mentioned another. Me? Which is, yeah. You mentioned another, which is um, a first-degree relative. Mm-hmm. And when we say first-degree, that would be um, a sibling or a parent or um, your child. Also is considered a first degree relative. So aunts, grandmothers are not first degree. Although you know, relatives. it's important to take that to take that history and, and take that into consideration. But the really significant elevated risk is in that first degree relative, particularly if that first degree relative had breast cancer in a premenopausal. So usually we would say that before the age of fifty. Well, when they're re- yeah during your reproductive years, mm-hmm. um, and and that actually is really an important bit of information. So knowing that someone has um, a history of breast cancer is important. But the next follow-up question, guys, from your um, from your clinician is going to be, how old were they when they were diagnosed? Um, and so this is, and, and that's important because there are some folks who um, have long periods of time between their initial diagnosis and if they may have a recurrence, et cetera. So it's really important to know um, not just the history of breast cancer, but the the timing or the age at which um, they were diagnosed. Absolutely. So another risk factor for breast cancer is having a personal history of breast cancer. That's one of the highest ones. Um, and another one would be, um, we, we talked about this too, um, the genetics component. Right. So part of the um, another risk would be having what we call what people often call BRCA genes, um, which is BRCA. There are two major types, one and two. 
Um, so it's pretty easy. Um, BRCA2 is more um, highly associated with um, breast cancer in males, which we had spoken about as well. Um, but that is um, so in addition to having first degree relatives, um, if you have the gene or have been identified as um, having the gene in your family, then that also increases your risk. Okay, we're going to go to the phones and talk to Annie, who's calling us from Boonville. Hey, Annie. Hey. Oh, I'm calling today. Uh, I'll have this bloody discharge in uh, at my nipple. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not very often. Maybe uh, this year it's been about two or three times. But it has a clear discharge uh, every day that I notice, you know, when I take my burn off at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an ultrasound in January, and then my sent me to a surgeon, and uh, he wanted another ultrasound, so they did the ultrasound, and uh, I asked them if they see anything, and uh, they said they seen some debris and a milk duct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyway, I talked to the surgeon, and he said it wasn't nothing to worry about, but clear discharge wasn't, and uh, I'm on a blood thinner, but uh. it, it's not a uh, uh, blood thinner. Uh, it's it's not doing that bleeding yeah. uh, very much, like maybe ever, uh, just ever so often, two or three times this year. Yeah, it can be a st- it can be alarming as it should be to right. see that bloody discharge in your bra or you know in your towel or when, however it presents or to actually see it coming out of your breast. And it is definitely something that needs to be worked up. And it sounds like. You did your due diligence and went and saw your doctor who even referred you then to a breast surgeon and you had um, imaging. So not all nipple discharge indicates cancer. So there are different growths that can just be growing inside of those ducts that can kind of irritate the duct or those little growths, which can be benign, can tend to bleed a lot, especially if you're on blood thinners. Um, Mm -hmm. But definitely if you have nipple discharge that doesn't go away, um, and if it is bloody, it's something to be concerned about. And I'm sure that your doctor is asking you to have regular imaging of that area and just make sure you follow up with that. Sometimes uh, they end up recommending that that area be excised and having a biopsy or a little excision in that area, which may eventually um, um, be something. But definitely stay vigilant and make sure that they keep on top of looking at that area and keeping a close eye on it. Yeah, but the good news, I think, is that um, most of the time, if you're just doing the numbers, if you're in the numbers, most of the time, bloody nipple discharge is not cancer. Um, but if it persists, you definitely need the workup. And there are um, other conditions that can lead to um, nipple discharge in people who are not lactating. Um, so it's really important to have that evaluated in its totality um, because it may also symbolize some other underlying um, problems that are not cancer related, but that still um, could require treatment. So there's other causes that can cause that thing. Other than cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. There are these things called papillomas. This is one of uh, a uh, relatively the common one. Yeah. Start. She's getting it's fired just, up. It's like a little, it's a little it almost like shaped like a tree. It's a little growth, but it's benign. It's not cancer that grows inside the duct, and they tend to have a lot of blood vessels inside of them. And if they get irritated or something, they will bleed, and they can bleed quite a bit. And partic- particularly if you're on blood thinners, um, so that they would be more common than a cancer. However. 
definitely nipple discharge of any type, especially bloody nipple discharge, is something that anyone should go to the doctor to have examined and looked at. Absolutely. So I totally understand why you got sent to the surgeon. That makes perfect sense. It sounds like you're being well taken care of. Absolutely. Okay, but uh, this debris, what, what, what does that mean? What is it? Yeah, when they're looking in the, with the ultrasound, they, they see a duct. So, you know, we all have, you know, have these ducts, even men, um, underneath their nipple. Because they're memories. Uh, that's right. And um, sometimes if you have, like, uh, discharge in your duct, the duct might be, like, dilated. It's a little bit wider than usual, and it's filled with some sort of fluid and maybe some kind of cells that kind of slough off and they're, like, floating around in it. And that's the debris. Oh, okay. All right. Y'all explained it very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for calling, Annie. So we've had some great calls today um, from our ladies out in the listening audience. Guys, y'all can call. Usually we have more guys. Women are showing out today. I like that. I know. Showing up showing out. Girl power. So let's talk about some other risk factors, Dr. Owens. Um, Okay. What we talk about? Um. We talked about family history. Oh, we talked Mm -hmm. about family history of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. but also family history of ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. Boom. So um, because there is a a correlation um, between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So if you have a family member who has a history of ovarian cancer, that is important um, and influences your overall breast cancer risk. Um, Other things uh, would be if you have, um, so I guess drugs. Um, so there are some medication exposures, most of which have not been available on the market for like over 40 years. But like, um, so some medication exposures can increase your risk. Um, and also if you have had, um, not just a prior history, but if you have had radiation therapy, um, radiation therapy will also increase, um, your risk for breast cancer. Absolutely. Did I get them all? We talked about dense breasts. That's a lot of them. But there's a lot of now modifiable ones that are worth talking about. Oh, so things and we didn't that you talk, can change. We didn't talk about um, reproduction. That's right. And so, the importance of reproduction. How could I forget that? Right. Oh, I mean, man. Whatever. So in general, the longer you have, the more menstrual cycles that you have in your lifetime, this is a good way to think about it, yeah. the higher your risk for having breast cancer. So if you start having your period at a relatively young age, and they define that as less than 11 years old, um, then that's a risk factor. And also late menopause, which is defined as over or equal to 55 years of age, less. And then if you've had less pregnancy, so when you're pregnant, you're on this ovulation holiday, right? It's not happening. You're not having your period. And so if you've had more pregnancies, that's less exposure to that cycle. Right. So um, not having ever been pregnant is another thing that can increase risk absolutely and so this is kind of the 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 part that i nerd out on is because the just this part we talked about like hormones right and the influence of hormones on glandular tissue um whether it is in any of our reproductive areas or um within the breast absolutely and so it is the hormone exposure and the changes that come about as a result of the exposure to the hormones that um, kind of is the background reason why um, having periods for a long period of time um, increases your risk. I think that's fascinating. Just like how it all kind of works are together. Real. It hormones all kind of makes sense. It all makes sense. But I know, I know there were some people who clutched the pearls when you said early age of um, onset of menstrual cycles 
Hello. This is a thing in this country. The average age of onset of menses or puberty um, in this country has been decreasing. And so, you know, it used to be kind of the teenage thing. But the average age is somewhere between 9 to 11. So, um, and, and it varies a little bit by ethnic group, but between 9 and 11. So we are, like, our young people are entering into puberty at much earlier ages um, than, you know, was the case 100 years ago. All right. We have a caller on the line. Richard is calling us from Madison. Hey, Richard. Hello, doctor. Uh, I knew it was my Richard. What's up, Richard? <laughs> How are you doctors doing today? We're doing great. great. How are you, Richard? All right. You get your workout Good. in this morning? I did. I know and, it. And, and it just happened that I just worked up some live CE uh, a day or so ago. Four women were on the panel, pharmacists and doctors, uh, and the topic was social inequities on treatment mm-hmm. outcomes in triple negative breast cancer. Oh, okay, Richard. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and one of the things they were talking about was screening mm-hmm. and the use of patient navigators. Mm-hmm. That being uh, people out in the community, social workers, nurses, uh, you know, helping people uh, get to screening. And that there are a lot of barriers there too, you know. Uh, rural people way out in the in the country trying to get in, uh, having uh, child care, mm-hmm. uh, insurance, uh, all that. Uh, they talked about some women having opting for uh, mastectomies over radiation treatment because they can't come in every day and get get those treatments. Mm-hmm. So it's just just. Uh, you know, the, uh, a tough thing to do, but their big push was the use of patient navigators. So, do you do you know, uh, or do y'all use that kind of uh, those kind of folks? So, at UMMC, uh, there are breast cancer navigators in the Cancer Institute, but I'm not aware of any on the screening side of things. Uh huh. Uh huh. They were encouraging that. Yeah, absolutely. Of you know, uh, course, that would take that would take a coordinated. Uh, effort to do that yeah it it does and you know that it's it's very difficult sometimes to fund those but time and time again um in a variety of different um outcomes especially as it pertains to those people who are marginalized whether it's economically or if they are geographically um kind of isolated in rural areas and things of that nature folks with limited access because what you're speaking to is the social determinants of health right um so those things around a person as they live and exist that also influence their ability to engage with the healthcare system and um it has been shown time and time again whether it's about infant mortality or if it is about health care um, for the underserved, that could, basically the medical establishment needs to meet people where they are. And right. when you do that through the utilization of people in the community, um, you know, that's why I think those mobile mammogram trucks and things like that are so successful because you mm-hmm. help to remove some of those barriers. And many barriers. of them, yeah, and many of them are things that we don't think about. But specifically as it pertains to um, the issues of disparate outcomes and then triple negative breast cancer. Um, that's one of the areas where there is definitely a huge 
um, racial divide in outcomes mm-hmm. oh, because yeah. African in the African American population, the they have much higher um, rates of triple negative breast cancer. Um, and the diagnosis timing tends to be later at diagnosis. And so um, right. the conversations have really been around how do you so when you see those outcomes and, and that is as they exist in the system, as we know it, what systemic change do we need to create that helps to eliminate some of those um, non-biologic barriers that keep people from getting the care that they need and having people who they trust in their communities who understand them and who can reach out and encourage them and be supportive to them has been shown time and time and time again to make differences in outcomes, closing the gap. But the problem is that it's really hard to find who look who's going to pay for them, how do you train them, um, right. what's going to be their their role, and I think we see it in say for example in doulas for birthing people. We have right. um, you know in, individuals who are advocates um, in a variety of different spaces, but there's so much opportunity within medicine for us to do more. Well, have you heard this term, healthcare desert? Oh, You've absolutely. I'm an OBGYN. I know desert. about it. Yep. Uh, we have obstetrical uh, deserts. Um, over 50% of the counties in the, in the state of Mississippi don't have obstetrical services or don't have access to women's health care. Uh-huh. A big one so, just closed recently yeah, so, up in the Delta. So, yeah. so absolutely. Right. Yeah, places where there's, there's no, like if, if you have a problem, there's nobody who can see you. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, for a place like us, it's a big deal because our population is spread out so much. We're like three million people, but we're spread out so much. You think about the population density in a place like New York City, where there's a hospital on every corner and there are millions of people stacked on top of each other. And here we are in Mississippi. It's three million people, but we're so spread out that there are a lot of people who have to drive hours to get to the nearest hospital or to get to the nearest, you know, healthcare clinician. Dr. Brown, did I do good? You always do good, Richard. Thank you for your call. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Man, Richard got us talking about all kinds of stuff today, man. That was great. Richard's a provocative dude, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but we are talking about breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. Um, I think you had started us talking about um, non about modifiable risk factors. Real quick. This is important. Everybody needs to know things. So we talked about the things you can't change. Now we'll start talking a little bit about things that you can change. Dr. Brown. Well, the usual suspects, Dr. Owens, (laughs) obesity, smoking, lack of physical activity. We didn't say it was easy. We just (laughs) said that you have the ability and the capacity to change it. We're not saying that, you know, it's a easy, these are easy lifts because they are not always, it. for sure. It, it, it's unfortunate, but women who are classified as overweight or obese have about twice the risk of women who are classified as having a quote-unquote normal BMI or body weight. So that would so be a BMI. A, so if you are overweight, that would be a BMI of greater than 25 kilograms per meter squared. And obese, the threshold is a BMI of 30 kilograms per meter squared. That's the new math. And you talked about dorking out about hormones. We can dork out a little bit more because one of the big issues, of course, it's multifactorial, but fat that's stored in your body actually causes more circulating estrogen. So there's uh, aspects of the fat that actually... um, 
in, induce more circulating hormones. And that is thought to be one of the large drivers of why uh, an increase of breast cancer and also cancer of the endometrium, the lining of the mm-hmm. uterus, which I know is an interest of yours, um, are um, worse in patients who are obese. Yeah, because estrogen, so uh, the two dominant female hormones, estrogen and progesterone, estrogen is the is like the stimulant, right? It's the growth thing. So estrogen says grow. Um, and that's whether it's follicles in your ovary, if it is the lining of the endometrium, um, in, in your breast, it's like grow. So it's a pro-growth hormone. It, it serves a lot of purposes. Um, and then progesterone is the one that basically it's the, it comes in and puts the finishing touches in, right? Like it's the thing that like says, like it switches the, it switches the switch to the glandular part, right? So that's the kind of secretory thing. So when we were talking about debris and other things like that is from the glandular component, the ability to secrete, whether it's your sweat glands, what does that do? It secretes sweat, um, sebaceous glands, sebum, um, and so the progesterone part is kind of like the glandular piece. Estrogen as that pro-growth, like when things are growing and growing rapidly, that's what increases your risk for something to go wrong in cell division and for you to end up with a cancer of some type. So that's kind of how all of the like the, the basic building blocks of the science come together to create those risks. So physical inactivity, women who get regular physical activity have a 10 to 20% lower risk of developing breast cancer compared to women who are not active. And Keep actually, moving. yeah, and you have a greater risk reduction associated with increasing levels of activity. So another great reason to get out and go for a walk. It's real pretty out right now before this rain comes. Go and just be active. Doesn't mean you have to run a marathon or no. do box jumps at the gym, but just getting out and being active and you know, vacuuming your house, walking around and doing stuff. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people feel like we have to be overly Herculean in this. It's not just make a, make a small commitment to yourself to get moving, um, a little bit every day and then just kind of build on that. 10 to 20% lower risk. Most of the time you feel better. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. And then maybe alcohol. We, yeah. You had to squeeze that. I'm one sorry. I got to throw it in there. We got like 30 seconds left. Alcohol, <laughs> drinking alcohol. So um, your risk for breast cancer definitely increases with the more alcohol that you drink. 7 to 10% for about each drink of alcohol consumed per day on average. So for the two glasses of wine folks out there? Mm -hmm, 20%. Look, you need to be moving (laughs) so that you stay neutral. That's right. Maybe you can work out and then you come to net zero. Exactly. I like like the way you think, Owen. Look, bring it back. You got to bring it back. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation for this Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Join us next week on Southern Remedy for Women. We're going to have our foot show, which y'all know is, you know, one of our very favorite guests to have uh, and one of our favorite topics to talk about. Today's Southern Remedy was produced and engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Charles Charles Arnold. With Dr. Michelle Owens, I'm Dr. Allie Brown, and thanks for joining us. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners like you on MPB Think Radio. Y'all be safe, be kind. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.